We still live in a world where if I ask ChatGPT to tell me a story about a boy and a girl who grew up together, then when they finish high school, they decide what to do to the university. The boy says, I want to study engineering. The girl says, I want to study art. And the reason that ChatGPT gives you is the girl says, I want to study art because I don't understand numbers. And welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who is definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and sometimes ridiculousness. We'll be looking some new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian. Did you know that ChatGPT thinks that all doctors are male and all nurses are female? Aren't they? No, I'm joking. Um, I'm not totally surprised by that statement, uh, but maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on that. Well, I came across a recent example where someone asked ChatGPT a question and referred to a doctor as a she and a nurse as a he. And ChatGPT's response that there must be a mistake or typographical error in the question. That's actually quite incredible. I didn't realize that ChatGPT taken us all back to the 1970s. But as I say, not surprising when you consider that a lot of AI technology is known to have a built-in bias. So it's a good thing that we invited someone who can chat to us about bias and stereotypes in products like ChatGPT and other AIs, along with important AI topics. Absolutely. So Ivana Bartoletti is the Global Privacy Officer at technology services and consultancy firm Wipro. She has a human rights background and is an internationally recognised thought leader in the fields of privacy, data protection and responsible technology. She's a visiting cybersecurity and privacy executive fellow at Virginia Tech, the author of the book An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI, and the founder of the Women Leading in AI Network. I'm so excited to get stuck in. Welcome, Ivana. Thank you. Really glad to be here. So I think let's start uh, really easily, and I think we're going to really get into the weeds quite soon, but we always like to start by simplifying things a little. How do you introduce yourself uh, at a dinner party? I'm sure you don't kind of lead with uh, that paragraph that, uh, that Alice has just led with. That's a really good question. Well, I normally just say I'm Ivana, and I um, work at the intersection between technology and the law. Well, Ivana, clearly you have amazing accolades behind you. So we'd love to get a bit of an insight into how did you actually get to where you are today? It has been a little bit weird, actually, because I have a background in human rights. And then I got into information technology and I got into security. And um, and then I started to, um, to really get involved into privacy, but from a human rights angle. So the reason why I'm into privacy is because I got involved into... Um, so into privacy activism many, many years ago. Um, so I got into privacy from really human rights angle. And then, uh, uh, and if you think, for example, a lot of the legislation that, that we have in privacy, it does come from that, you know, the idea of human dignity, the idea that you respect uh, autonomy so you don't get all this micro-targeting uh, uh, and recommendations based on, on, on some characteristics of you that you don't even know about and then AI became more and more popular and I said oh well I want to learn a little bit of coding there is never too late for that and then I realized quite early on that there was something really important about data that um 
and the, in, the idea of collecting data is not a neutral thing. And that was really, really fascinating. When this data get coded into machines, they make predictions, decisions, and they present you text and they have an editorial functions and they act as a gateway to the reality that you see. That, that I realized that uh, that data was quite important and we need we needed to study it a little bit more. You, you kind of touched on a whole bunch of really interesting themes there. Are all of them encapsulated in your book? Could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about your book and, and any of the other sort of themes that you've been exploring there? Yeah, so my book actually started from a surreal reason. The, re the, the reason is because I was, at the time, I was thinking, with all these technologies, my life as a woman becoming an easier. So that's how everything started. I was like, well, you know, I can... Um, I can do my 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 work, and at the same time, I can order my food and on online, and at the same time, I can order my um, kids' presents, you know, for a birthday party on Amazon, and I can do all these things together. And 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 I was thinking, yes, technology is fabulous, but is my life getting any easier, or actually, do I have to do even more, just in a very technological way? And I realized that the reason why that was happening is because a lot of this technology was actually designed by men, and so one of the reasons why, sorry, Brian, one of the reasons why my, <laughs> one of the reasons why I wasn't really benefiting that much, although, yeah, of course, technology is great and, you know, it, it, but it was because it's like, well, we haven't got enough women, enough diversity in designing, shaping this technology, let alone ingesting the data into the machines, you know, that's another issue altogether. But, uh, um, so it's the lack of women in programming, but I was also thinking about, who is designing these technologies? You know, that I actually, a lot of women, we have to become even more wonder women. Instead of making our life easier, it seems that we actually do it more and not less. So that's where everything started. And I actually, in two, and, and I, in, I think it was two, 2018, I wrote an article in The Guardian. And in this article, I basically said, hey, technology is great. Um, I really love it, but I love it to the point that I want it to benefit everybody. And not just men. And I and and I said we have to be we have to worry about bias in these technologies. We have to worry about um, the fact that these that we are um, putting a lot of the existing inequalities into software that makes decisions and predictions about tomorrow. And and then I convened a lot of people, and a lot of people showed up, and they came to London School of Economics, and and then I was approached by. Um, an editor saying, do you want to write about this? And this is how my, how the, the old journey into women leading in the eye, my book, that's how everything came together. Of course, I was building on a tradition of women. And as I have to say, uh, a lot of them coming from the United States and especially women of color, uh, like Joy Bulanwini, like Sophia Noble, um, and others like Meredith Whitaker. Um, fabulous leader who had put even their jobs on the line to really raise awareness in around sort of the, the wonderful things that artificial intelligence and technologies can do, but also the darker side in relation to bias, to discrimination, to the automation of inequality, the automation of poverty, um, when these systems are used in a reckless way without adequate controls and with, without adequate awareness. How have you found that things have maybe changed since you've written your book as well? In three years could seem such a short time, but 
actually lots can change in that period of time. I feel that uh, we've definitely have raised a lot of awareness around the need for more women in technology, more women into coding, um, more women programming, and also more women in business. I mean, I think there is now a general awareness that we need more diversity. Um, some things have been addressed. I'll give you an example. Until not long ago, if you asked um, Siri questions like, um, if you said to, to Siri, for example, something really like bad, like your B word, Siri would respond, um, you make me blush. Interesting. Instead of responding, I don't accept this language. Yeah. Okay. Um, so things like this have changed. The UNESCO's done a huge campaign on this. I mean, there has been awareness and increasing awareness that that these systems, they um, take the existing inequalities and they turn them into software that makes decisions about the future and codifies basically the, future, the present into the future. And this happens for a very simple reason, that again, it's becoming more, um, the people are understanding more and more, which is the fact that data is not neutral. Data is a photo of our society as it is. And being a photo of society as it is, it is really the mirror and the consequence of decades, centuries of inequalities and, and stereotypes and prejudices. So this again, also this is becoming more 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 common knowledge and, and things have changed because now people understand this, because the idea of having to massage the data is something that a lot of companies and, and um, understand. They feel that it's correct. They feel that um, they, if they want to get an equitable output, they have to ensure that they want to do this and they have to um, create the right data sheets. They have to manipulate the data in a certain way. So there has been more awareness. However, we still live in a world where we are surrounded by digital servants. Siri, Alexa, Katana. You ask, they do. They're there to serve, they're there to obey, not to challenge. Our kids, they grow up giving Alexa, that as a female name, orders. We still live in a world where if I ask ChatGPT to tell me a story about a boy and a girl who grew up together, then when they finish high school, they decide what to do to the university. The boy says, I want to study engineering. The girl says, I want to study art. And the reason that ChatGPT gives you is, the girl says, I want to study art because I don't understand numbers. We still live in a world where what happens in the Netherlands, and the government has to resign for it, is that a, um, an algorithm gave a higher risk possibility of defrauding the welfare state to families with double citizenship. And double citizenship is a proxy of framing for immigration. And that meant that a lot of immigrant women and families, they had their kids removed, ended up into poverty, and the government had to resign for this. I mean, so the, the, the consequences of all this are very stark. Sorry, Ivana, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said, because I don't think you'll get much disagreement from certainly from uh, sort of left-leaning or centrist or even center-right uh, side of the sort of political spectrum. Most people would agree that that's uh, gender equality, racial equality, uh, social equality when it comes to class, all of those kinds of things. You do see these biases built into 
into technology and systems. Um, you've also, though, spoken a lot about the protection of democracy and human rights. Uh, and I think, you know, certainly at, at face value without digging into it, that seems like a little bit of a stretch. Would you, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about the risk that AI and, and, and you know, sort of data not, not being, you know, or, or should I rather say data being taken at face value rather than being looked at carefully before it's used to train the AI could actually be, you know, become a risk to things like democracy and political systems. Yeah. So first of all, I just wanted to say this is not about right or left at all in the sense that these issues are recognized by governments all across the globe. So you have they so the the fact that AI is is can offer fantastic opportunities only and will do so if we are able to harness the, the, the to in, to harness the opportunity we have to mitigate there is this is recognised everywhere the European AI Act which has been voted by the European Parliament uh, in June and is now going to. To, to negotiation, the sort of inter-institutional dialogue that brings together parties from the conservative to the left, everybody. There is an, an agreement around the fact that AI systems and generative AI tools, they have to be transparent, they cannot discriminate, they, um, non-discrimination law already applies to artificial intelligence systems. It has limits, but already applies to this system. So. A system that discriminates on the ground of the color of the skin or or or, or, or gender or it already in breach of legislation. Um, the way that they're being tackled is different, in the sense that the legislation already exists and is wrapped around these systems anyway. So when people say we need legislation around AI, yes, we do. However, we can't forget the fact that privacy law, human rights law, non-discrimination law, everything already applies to artificial intelligence, right? Um, so these, the reason why I'm saying this to you, Brian, is because there is recognition around all this. What is different and what, you know, the different um, approaches may be in relation to how you govern this. So, for example, the EU has chosen an approach which is product-based and covers all products across all sectors. The, uh, the US, which is going very strong on this, on this correlation, the, the FTC, They've said it will come after you, to companies, will come after you if, if you discriminate. So there is recognition policymakers across the globe and across the spectrum that these issues are crucial. When it comes to democracy, this is actually being raised sometimes in a way which is a little bit, a bit too catastrophic, but it's been raised by the big tech execs themselves. And so, Ivana, maybe if we just um, stay on that topic around kind of government, their ability to impact this, for example, and, and regulations. Obviously, we've spoken a lot around the um, bias that is contained in AI, and I'm actually shocked at some of the examples that you've you've given me there. Um, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on kind of the importance of regulation and around the safe adoption rules when it comes to AI. Are we at least heading in the right direction, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of laws exist already, right? So, for example, when it comes to uh, NIST, when it comes to cybersecurity, when it comes to, you know, the, the, the companies, all, they have to comply with what is there already, okay? Um, so, for example, when it comes to privacy, to privacy legislation, um, it, it, we have, you know, the GDPR in Europe, um, AI systems already have to comply with 
with, with legislation around this. Of course, what is really important is that um, is the legislation around which systems hit the market and what is the due diligence that these systems have to adhere to before they hit the market. So, for example, the approach chosen by the European Union, which is very much risk-focused, and is the approach that says, okay, if there's an AI that is banned because it's, it's in breach with the fundamental rights of the binders together, um, so, for example, things like the, the having China, which is the, sort of the constant surveillance and they, the, Europe, the, sort of the, the European Parliament said, well, actually, this is not in line with, with the way of living that we have in, in the West, and therefore, this is just banned. And then they said, um, but there are products which are high risk because they infringe upon the rights, they may infringe upon the rights of individuals. So, for example, a system that has an allocative function that decides whether you've got access to something which is really relevant to your life, job, for example, um, a, a mortgage, um, that system has to undertake some due diligence. And when they're placed into the market, they have to be in a specific register. They have to be monitored. And legislation is being developed everywhere. You know, some people say, oh, you know, the risk is we regulate too much. But if you think about a country, for example, like China, which is over competitive, China has just introduced sweeping regulation in this space of generative AI, which you could understand because generative AI for China may even be threatening, you know, because obviously in terms of disinformation, in terms of uh, um, the spreading of, of information that the, the, the country like China may see as very dangerous from the their viability of, of, of their of their of their state. You know, so um but I was I was actually gonna ask you about that was you've kind of got sort of three quite divergent approaches. You've got one which let's call it pro-innovation with a with a light regulatory touch. I'm probably massively oversimplifying it, which is more the American approach. Then you've got the let's call it the sort of pro-human rights, pro-democracy, pro-privacy approach, which is more the European with a, with a very heavy regulatory touch. And then everyone was worried that China would out-innovate everybody, but it turns out that they've actually got a, a stability and a social cohesion. Whatever, I'm not sure that's, that's the best way to characterize it, but how you described an approach to regulation. But what about a fourth option? Is, is What about a nation state that decides that's, that they're going to have a very, very lightly regulated pro-innovation uh, approach to, to, to AI? Are they not going to get the advantage over everybody else and, and just be able to... Um, you know, accelerate the AI development that's that's very lightly regulated. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy question. The sense the EU regulates also because the EU finds that in that's that's power is also through regulation. You know, you've seen this with the General Data Protection Regulation. You know, there is something about the so-called Brussels effect. You know, the idea of um, in the face of huge competition globally, the US on the one hand, China on the other hand, and, and others. The EU says the approach has always been uh, I innovate I innovate through imposing regulations and the rest of the world has got to, to, to adhere to. Um, and we have seen that this actually is quite powerful as a tool. So um, the, the, I am not surprised that the EU was the first one to put out legislation like, legislation like this because it does to an extent with all the limits. I'm, simpl I'm oversimplifying, but it does work. Although you may argue, and correctly so, that actually the EU doesn't have any big Alibaba or, or Google or Amazon, nevertheless, nevertheless, exactly for that reason, for not having any Google or any Alibaba, the EU pursues a strategy of innovation by regulation. However, one thing is worth remembering. 
And that is that in recent times, we have seen a very strong alignment between the US, UK, Europe on the topic of a human rights-based, rights-based artificial intelligence. So what is happening is that the recent alignment and the, driven by a lot by Biden saying we need to align between like-minded nations that view a future of artificial intelligence in a certain way. Now, whether the, the, the reason for all this is, is really around, purely around human rights and wanted to focus on human rights, yes, I mean, obviously this is a, a sort of very important for, for, uh, for this part of the world, but also there is another reason for this, which is, of course, global competition. And the idea that there is an alignment that we we have to stand up to countries like China, which are growing and they are uh, becoming bigger and bigger in the economy, in technology, and not just in products, but also in infrastructures. And with that in mind, um, Ivana, what are your thoughts on, say, you know, we're hearing about large companies in the EU speaking out around, say, the, the proposed AI regulation and, and the act there and its potential to hurt that competitiveness with other regions, for example. Would you say their concerns are justified? I mean, the, uh, it, I mean, the European AI Act, obviously, is, the, is, is not perfect in any by any means. You know, it's it's in the sense that um, is something that I've I have championed. Is something that I've contributed to. I mean, I, and something that I am actually there are some elements which I'm I'm really happy about. For example, the idea that you know very strong limits to facial recognition in public spaces. Um, I would have, for, for example, um, there are things like um, sandboxes and innovation that maybe the European AI AI Act could have done more on. But I don't think the problem is the European AI Act. Maybe the problem is more about an issue within the EU in itself. So there are unanswered questions about the way that um, investment in technology and digital policies happen at the European level um, that are bigger than the European AI Act in itself. Um, I feel that a lot of these companies openly criticize also the European AI Act. I expect this because... Obviously, the European AI Act is now entering the the uh, interinstitutional dialogue. So these companies, um, like every technological company or like every organization, I mean, this is a time where companies are trying to say what they think because this is the last phase of negotiations around the European AI Act. And I do think that um, there is no dichotomy between innovation and responsible use and development of these technologies because... Um, in the US, for example, I mean Brian and you know you were mentioning earlier the, the pro innovation approach. Yes, but the European, but the America and the US is also now this, the the place where you have seen a lot of challenges to these technologies. Um, FTC has launched a massive investigation over OpenAI. Where is the data coming from? You know, who is uh, uh, there is a big debate around data scraping. There is a big discussion around sort of you know what is so where is this data coming from? How is this this product being trained? So, so I don't think we are any longer in a situation where you have countries that do not place controls, countries that place controls. Everybody's trying to place controls on this because, um, because the risks are big. I mean, you mentioned Brian democracy and human rights. It's not me mentioning that, or it's not you mentioning that. It's Sam Altman. 
is the founder of, of, of the, one of the founders of Google. Because how quickly you can use and spread fake news through generative AI, create videos in a matter of seconds. They are absolutely similar to the voice and the videos and the faces of, of, of real people. Just a few weeks ago, a fire next to, 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 to the Pentagon, where it was, um, it was a fake image, but it sent chaos into to the financial markets. So I'd like to touch on something you mentioned there because I'm I'm actually a little bit conflicted about this. Um, what I do um, have a problem with is certain organizations, AI companies, particularly the very, very well-funded ones, have almost overhyped the threats of AI. And I'm not talking about the threats you just mentioned. Those are very real threats, disinformation, uh, you know, deep fakes, all of those kind of things, um, some of the cybersecurity risks, those are very real. What's potentially, in my view, not that real, or certainly not a near-term real risk, is this concept of um, uh, these kind of super AIs coming and taking over the world. And and and, and that's sort of been what, what some of these, these AI companies have done, is they've overhyped the risk. They've sort of almost asked for regulation. And I think the cynical view of that is they're trying to use that as almost a strategic moat to keep out the very, very small players, you're not going to be able to have the funding and the skills and the, and the necessary kind of, you know, abilities to actually comply with all that regulation. And we're going to be left in the arms of these very, very large, uh, you know, hyperscale technology companies. Where do you stand on the overhyping side? And, and do you think maybe I'm taking the, the sort of cynical view a little bit too far? No, no, you're not. I mean, to be honest, I uh, sometimes I, I found myself, you know, that when I hear this sort of dramatic approach that, you know, AI is going to destroy the whole humanity and you know, the, I feel like that to an extent, it's a way to hide from the, the real debate. We know about the risks of AI, right? Um, people have been talking about this for a very long time. And I mentioned the women, you know, at the beginning, you know, the women who've been pioneers in this field. These, if you watch um, Coded Bias, which is still Netflix by Joan Bullen-Winnie, which talk about what it means when facial recognition systems fail to recognize the faces, especially black women, and impact that this has on, on, on our daily life, you know, and, and especially the life of, of, of women of color. Um, then, you know, we... To an extent, we know about this risk. And we know that the risks are disinformation, bias, fake news, manipulation, um, privacy, security, robustness. We know the risks are there. So talking about Terminator is intriguing, but it, it, it scares people off. And to an extent, mystifies AI even further. People think that these are some magic things. But actually, they are not. Every AI system is a combination of data, which is not neutral, parameters with chosen by human beings, people who are the ones who write this system, create these systems. They may be the glamorous people sitting in the Silicon Valley or, or in, in a London office, but they may be. They may be. The workers paid one pound an hour in countries which are far less rich, and they are there to look at the systems, to train the systems, to look at thousands and thousands of images of polyps, to train a machine to identify a, a, a medical, to, to create a medical software that is able to recognize where you're poly, whether you've got polyps or not in your body and you need an operation. Now, the systems are going to evolve. New risks are going to emerge, and this is why... Um, 
you know, this is why we do need an international framework because these systems, they do evolve. They will become more, um, they would become more powerful. But I do think in them mystifying them, it's not good. You know, we don't need to mystify them. We need to bring them to people's our homes. Um, we need people to play with them, to understand them. And Ivana, I'd like to maybe bring us back to a topic that we touched on right at the very beginning. You know, we're aware that you have uh, sort of supported and set up the Women Leading in AI Network. How did you decide to, to start that network? And I guess, what was its main purpose when you started? So the purpose was to um, really get more women into the conversation around AI and the future of AI. So more women into coding, obviously, because a lot of time, the bias that is into the systems, you can't really see it. Um, and if don't, it, the reason why you don't see it is because the workforce is not diverse enough. And funnily enough, um, coding was actually a female thing when it, when it started. It was because um, it was considered very similar to knitting. And then what happened in the 60s and the 70s is that coding and data, they became very much related to capital money. And, and then that's where you started to see, even from the posters, for example, the ABM posters, you started to see men in suits. Um, and, and, you know, in, as programmers or coders, um, of course, when the money came into it. So, um, so I wanted more women in this space, but I also wanted more women in policy because we have the time where we are deciding the future about, of, of, of AI and, and we are definitely at a crossroads in relation to sort of with regards to the relationship between us as humans and these machines, how are we going to cohabit with these machines? How are we going to work together? Um, and the fact that I had an ITU conference a few days ago in, in Switzerland, um, uh, there were robots that were there. And these robots, I mean, even if you look at them, I was thinking, why do you have to humanize these robots if they have to look like a skinny white woman? You know, I'm like, what's the need? So I, so I just wanted to see more women in, in decision-making, in policy, deciding how we're going to use these tools, how we're going to de de define the rules of the game. Ivana, I know we're sort of coming close to time, but I just want to touch on the cybersecurity angle as well. What are your views in terms of the real cyber risks that are there? Because we've seen a whole bunch of things coming out around cyber and a lot of it is overhyped. What else are you seeing? What else are you concerned about when it comes to cybersecurity? And, and are you potentially concerned that all kinds of AI are going to be used extensively by cyber attackers i am actually concerned about the um the capabilities that uh, that uh, can be um deployed and i'm um and i think there is a lot of work that is happening especially by nist and and the new standards are actually quite good in what in supporting organizations understanding what they need to, to to put in place i'm also concerned about for example from a fan that we talked about bias and just to close on that i'm also concerned about um in the impact from a cybersecurity standpoint of what it means, for example, and how bias can actually be in, ingested into a system um, to create some really awful results, you know? So um, if, if some, that is something that organizations need to really to, 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 be, to, be, to be concerned about. And I think that's a great place to, to sort of call an end to this. Um, I would have loved to carry on talking for hours and hours. I think you're a sort of a font of, very, very sort of deep knowledge on, on a huge number of areas and, and we'd love to have you back on the podcast at some stage. But 
thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And we always like to end the podcast by asking just a few simple questions. So, Ivana, maybe looking back over your career, what would be one insight that you'd wish you'd learned sooner or that you could go back and tell your younger self? Um, to, to try as much as possible. Like, really try, try and try and try because it's, uh, in the, you know, the, the mistakes and errors you can make when you are 20, then, you know, you can really recover quite quickly and it's harder to recover when you're a bit old. <laughs> I think I can relate to that. And then something that always gives us some very, and, I'm, and you know, not to put you on the spot, but I'm sure you're going to have a very interesting answer here is what are you reading or listening to at the moment? And is there anything that you'd recommend to our listeners other than your own book, of course? So in name is Federica Basso and I'm reading books from her I and mean, all of them. She's um, wonderful. And she's been writing about my favorite topic, which is friendships um, about for, between women. Uh, so yeah, highly recommend Amazing. Oh, that sounds like a really good recommendation. Thank you. And maybe looking towards now the future, what trends do you think we might be spotting in the world of AI in, say, the next year? So we're going to see a lot of glamour, glamour of a, in the next year. We're going to see a lot of announcements coming. Um, I think the real the, the challenge will be to really look into what is there and, and recognise what is glamorous and what is real. And I think we're going to see some interesting innovation in the space of healthcare. Uh, which is probably the one that I'm that I find really promising because um, uh, because it's something that is tangible helps everyone. So I think it would be we're going to see um, systems to support people, um, medical companions for especially for older people, and I think this is a very fascinating area we're moving into. A huge number of changes coming, and finally, where can our listeners find out more about you and your book? Website. And um, ivanabatolesi.co.uk, easy, simple, there. And there's um, all the things that I do and, uh, yeah, and get in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, Ivana, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure to have you with us. And thank you also for our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our LinkedIn page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Until next time, 